Well, it's November 1st already, and you're listening to this episode of Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. November 1st, and depending on where you live in Canada, it is starting to get cool, starting to get cold. Uh, I live in Windsor, and uh, we're still waiting for first snow, Uh, but uh, many other parts of Canada, you already have had that uh, wonderful white experience. And uh, we think about uh, how cold it gets. Uh, That's part of having the four seasons. Um, And so what do we do? We do what I'm doing here tonight. I'm sitting in my living room next to my fireplace because it's a little bit chilly and I want to warm up. But for some people who are out on the streets in our cities, this is not an experience they're going to have. In fact, uh, just in the last uh, month, I had two uh, garbage cans stolen out of my alley. And these are like the big 100-gallon Herbie Kirby type garbage pails with wheels. And uh, they were stolen. And uh, whatever um, they're being used for, uh, one thing that a couple people told me, and I uh, I kind of hope it's not true, but it could be is that uh, homeless people are using these as shelters uh, to sleep in. Uh, that's, that's disturbing. Uh, on our episode today, uh, we have an interview with uh, a young friend of mine, Adam White. Adam White is the youth pastor at New Song Church where I pastor. He's also the chaplain at the Center of Hope, the Salvation Army Shelter here in Windsor, Ontario. Last year, I interviewed Adam, and we talked a bit about his uh, journey through life. In grade seven, if you think about grade seven, how many 12-year-olds you know? At grade, at, in grade seven, at the age of 12, Adam left his small town in Lucan, Um, He hitchhiked into London, Ontario, about 20 minutes away, and lived on the streets, lived in the parks for about two weeks. Finally, uh, he was reunited with his family, and uh, we're going to hear a bit about that story. Uh, But that's a reality in many of our urban centers across Canada, that we have youth that are homeless. And many times, uh, homeless youth are coming from life's difficulties in small towns. What a vulnerable place to be. Well, we're going to go to our interview with Adam White. And uh, it's great to hear how um, such early troubles uh, turned into a, a life of caring for other people um, that are living on the streets. Here's Adam White. Adam, I gotta ask, you're 26 years old and you've been working as a chaplain for three years. You started when you were 23. Um, I don't know too many chaplains at that age. <laughs> um, was this kind of like a life goal and you're just a super achiever? Or <laughs> like, how did you end up getting this job? Yeah, well. I have definitely been called a super achiever before in my life, but not in regards to chaplaincy. Um, 
it was never a goal of mine. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. Um, I still don't really know that much about it. Um, I got this job really out of like the will of God. Um, God just opened a door. Um, position was already closed, um, and I got a call. Um, my name just literally came to the executive director's head um, because of a prior email that I had sent over a year ago about a different position. So it was very much the hand of God just opening up a door um, and taking me out of a, a place of just being uh, completely miserable and ready to just give up. That was your year as an insurance agent. Yeah. Completely miserable yes. and ready to give it all up. <laughs> yeah, there were uh, there were very frustrating moments in that year. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, I'd moved to Windsor um, to be a youth pastor at a, at a local church here. Um, and, here we are, New Song Church. Yeah, um, and fell in love with the place, but had to figure out how to put food on my table. <laughs> um, so I, I took whatever job I could get and an insurance broker was the first one. Um, and, you know, I passed my exam and uh, then before I knew it, I uh, I went back and forth between uh, do I get into this full time and leave everything else or do I begin to try and do what God has called me to? And uh, God kept tugging at me, and I kept applying, um, had interviewed at other churches and was trying to figure out a dual role, and every single one of them just shut the door on me. Um, <clears throat> and I just said, I give up, mm-hmm. um, and God opened the door. When, when people think about chaplains, you know, uh, padre, you know, or father, yeah. You know, there's there's often, you know, you, the stereotype would be a middle-aged or older man or woman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you don't don't fit that mold. Uh, you won't for quite a while yet. <laughs> um, do you think your age has any bearing or any effect on your ministry uh, with chaplaincy? Um, yes, most definitely. Um, both good and both bad. Okay, talk me through that. Um, Chaplaincy is all about this ministry of presence. Um, Being present in this exact moment, um, shutting out the cares of, um, you know, of what just happened and the cares of what's about to happen, Um, and being present with yourself, Mm -hmm. being present with that person, and being present with God. Um, And that takes a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, not something that many good, not not something that many young people are good at. Mm. Um, so when I got into it, um, I treated it just like being a pastor, mm-hmm. and it's not. No. Um, so, but for the the good side of it is that I interact with a lot of people that aren't that much, you know, younger or older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely interact with a lot of people that are, you know, closer to your age. Um, but the people that are close to my age, it's, it's really refreshing for them to see like, Hey, like you're 26 and like, you're doing this, you're doing this. Mm-hmm. Like you have it all, you know, for them, I have it all together. Um, 
So it, it's a little bit of a, a breath of fresh air for mm-hmm. some of the people I serve. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's like the dark horse that wins the race. Yeah. yeah they're not suspecting <laughs> uh, what they get. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of guys I interact with, I think they think I work as like IT in the building or something. Mm-hmm. Even though I sit at the end of the hall and and my door says chaplain on it. Yeah. Um, they see me walking around and, you know, I'll be setting stuff up in the chapel or I'll be doing this, that and everything. Um, and guys will see me for weeks on end and, and then they'll finally stop me and say like, hey, what do you do here? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, you know, then I tell them that I'm the chaplain and most of them, it's a jaw drop moment. They're yeah. like, what? And it's great because then it it leads to a conversation Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it leads into an opportunity for me to tell them about my story. I think you uh, are doing something that, you know, for for a 26 year old uh, in in ministry, you're you're on a uh, just on, you know, a very front line kind of um, stretch everything that you are to the limit. (laughs) kind of role. Um, now, let's talk a bit about your childhood. And, you know, when, I, know I know your story. And, and uh, I mean, at a very young age, you were using hard drugs and you spent some uh, time out on the streets in London, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a story that could have ended disastrously. In fact, you could have been one of the guys staying at the shelter. Yep. You know, um, or worse, you could have could have passed from the way you were living, but you lived to tell. Um, what was going on? How did you end up in that situation as such a young person? Tell us all. Tell us that story. Yeah, <clears throat> um, I grew up in a small little town, um, and grew up in church. I was like born into the church, but. Uh, Severely doubted God. Um, as a little boy, I probably gave my life to Jesus at some point. Um, and maybe that's the reason why God protected me so much. I don't know. Um, but at an early age, you know, when I was about 10, I started to just doubt everything. I saw my family in just complete turmoil. Um, all of my three older siblings just causing so much stress on my parents and me not really feeling like I was getting the attention that I deserved. But my parents were stretched so thin. Um, so I turned to just doing whatever I could to try and get their attention. And it started out just, you know, doing stupid stuff like any other kid, like playing Nicky Nicky Nine Door, print calling people, you know, egging people's houses, um, stupid stuff like that. And it just kind of graduated very quickly, you know. I was in grade six, and um, me and a few friends, we broke into somebody's garage and, and just stole a couple motocross jerseys. Nothing of real value. Um, and it wasn't to sell it. It was just to wear it and just be like, yeah, we're, we're tough and we're cool. And we got caught because of it. And, uh, and then, you know, my parents said, you can't hang out with them anymore, so... I found different friends and it just graduated to worse things. You know, um, me lighting a road on fire, um, just for the fun of it. Um, (laughs) me and friend, me and my friends just like, 
Um, now you're describing yourself as a country boy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I am a country boy, <laughs> um, but I hate that. <laughs> um, you know, our routine was just like we get up, we skateboard, we do drugs, we skateboard, and that was the routine. Like in the summers, that was the only thing we did. And we would just do whatever we could to to get drugs, to have fun, and to just live in the moment. And me and a friend of mine, we broke into a baseball vending station. It was in the off season, and we were looking for money, food, and beer. And all we found was food. <laughs> so we took it all, um, shoved it in garbage bags, and then uh, we ended up getting caught by his dad. Um, and his dad got it out of him. And uh, he then proceeded to go and tell my parents what had happened. And, uh, you know, it wasn't that my parents, like, freaked out. Like, they were upset. They were like, Adam, go to your room. And I was just done, right? I just wanted them to see me, and I didn't feel like they did. So I packed my bag, and the next day I, uh, I hitched a ride with a buddy of mine to, uh, to London. Um, to go to the movies, and uh, I didn't even tell my friends what I was doing. I, I just said I uh, I was going to go over to my girlfriend's who lived in London. After that, how old were you at this time? I was in grade seven, so I would have been uh, twelve years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, my parents didn't even know I was gone. I snuck out the window, packed a bag, um, and, and went and uh, went to the movies with a friend. And then uh, you know he, he headed back with with his older brother or his parents or whatever, and, and I, uh, I stayed in London. And there was a couple nights I stayed at my girlfriend's, and there was a couple nights when I didn't, you know, and just, you know, hanging out in a park, not really sleeping, uh, hanging out in parking garages, too scared to really go to bed being a 12-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. um, and <sighs> throughout all of that, thinking to myself for the first time and really saying to God, like, are you real? Mm -hmm. Like, is this it? Because I don't want to live like this. Because I didn't want, I didn't want to do drugs. I didn't want to get in trouble. I just wanted to feel like I was loved by God and loved by people. And I never did. Still, sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm. um, and... God said to me when I was prepared to just take my own life, um, he said, Adam, I love you. Come back to me. Hmm. So I called my mom. Well, actually, <laughs> I, was, I was too chicken to call my mom. One of my, one of my friends at the time, actually, she called my mom. Mm -hmm. It was 2 a.m. My mom got in the car um, and drove, you know, the 20 minutes on the highway to get to London and picked me up and I was expecting her to get out of the car and just yell at me. They didn't know where you were? No idea. There was an Amber Alert out for my name. In fact, a couple cops even stopped me in this two-week stretch that I was on the streets. And for some reason, they didn't, like, cuff me and bring me in. It was super weird. It was so strange. Um, and my mom came to get me. She got out of the car. It's the middle of the night. I'm like, oh, man, I'm so dead. <laughs> <laughs> And she doesn't say a word to me. She's just crying. She comes over and hugs me. Hmm. And it was like that moment that I was like, wow, like Jesus does actually act through people. Mm -hmm. And I could tangibly feel the love of God. 
And uh, I'd like to say that my life was uh, perfect after that. It wasn't. It took some time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still taking some time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I got clean and I, uh, I tried to sort my life out as best as I could. Mm-hmm. And uh, my youth pastor at the time was a huge part to play in all of that. Mm. So this happened, you're 12 years old, grade mm-hmm. 7. Yeah. Um, that's um, not a uh, typical middle-class childhood necessarily. Yeah. Uh, but it was your childhood. And uh, do you think a lot about those childhood experiences, or is that a long time ago for you mentally? Um. Before I got into chaplaincy, I didn't like to think about it that much. Mm-hmm. And now I'm kind of forced to. Yeah, because are you seeing an echo of your own life? Yeah. I, I often ask the question, why am I the lucky one? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these people that I'm serving, their life didn't start out that much different than mine. Mm-hmm. There are some that, yeah, they had horrific... Uh, you know, abuse as a kid and tragic moments. Um, I was pretty fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really grow up, you know, I didn't grow up rich, but I didn't grow up really needing or wanting for that much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often ask myself the question and ask, and ask God the question, God, why did you, why have you spared me? Um, and why has it taken them so long to get the help that they need? Mm-hmm. Great question. And, uh, you know, when, when you think about how people view the street population in most cities, um, there's lots of people who look at addicts and they'll look at uh, people that are strugglers and want to write them off. Uh, those those people they'll yeah. never amount to anything they're they're true broken you can't trust them to change you know how much does the dysfunction of people's lives that you work with affect you personally <laughs> um, I would like to say not at all but I would be lying <laughs> yeah um, more than I like to admit Mm-hmm. Um, there are days when um, I just don't know how to come home and interact with my wife mm-hmm. because I can't really tell her much. Right. Um, because, I, you know, there's a, a large confidentiality piece to my job mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that a lot of the times all I can say is, you know, I had a really tough day. Yeah. Um, and it it's taken me up till, you know, being in this for three years to begin to figure out what it means to try to leave that stuff at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I don't care about the individuals I serve because some of the people I serve, I would say, have been better friends to me than some of the friends that I've had in my life. Wow. Um, they're a lot more genuine. Mm-hmm. But 
I can't bring them over to my house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're you're in a situation that's very much like Jesus experienced when he came and lived among us. <laughs> you know, he came to to love everyone, uh, but not everyone. Uh, I mean, from Jesus' perspective, the people that he he cared about were often the same kind of people that you care about <laughs> in your in your work in your ministry. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, so uh, we we have to look at Jesus, don't we, to say, Jesus, how did how did you deal with the stuff that you had to see over and over again? <laughs> and uh, so we see Jesus, he had to draw a line. He had to, even with his disciples, he had to separate himself from them at times and uh, had to go be alone. Yeah, he yeah. he had to be alone. He, you know, he had his he had his big group, right? Mm-hmm. And then he had his twelve, and then he had his few, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you know, especially like Peter and John, um, those those few disciples that he was, you know, a lot closer with to some degree. Yeah, um, that I'm sure he maybe shared things with those disciples that he didn't maybe share with other ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the ones that he brought with him to go and pray in the garden before his crucifixion. Um, I think that being able to withstand the storms of ministry, especially mm-hmm. urban ministry, you need to have those people. Yeah, It doesn't mean that you have to give them every detail, because Jesus didn't give his disciples every detail. But he asked his disciples to be present. He said, can't you stay awake and pray with me, right? He asked their presence. And in order to do successful chaplaincy work, when you go home, it's almost like you need a chaplain for yourself. <laughs> um, that that you, you're saying, as Jesus said, can't you just pray with me? Yeah. Can't you just be present with me? So Emily is your chaplain. <laughs> <laughs> to some degree, yes. <laughs> So uh, tell us a little bit about Emily. Um, you know, what uh, What do you like about her? Yeah, I mean, you've been together a few years now as, as husband and wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have been married for six years this coming August, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little crazy to think about. Um, my wife is often uh, misunderstood. And for some reason, that's something I, I love about her. Um, is just that she's got so many different layers. Um, not to like quote Shrek, but uh, my wife is like an onion. <laughs> um, not that she smells like one, um, but that when you peel back all of the layers, she makes you cry. <laughs> she, she does do that sometimes. Um, but she uh, she has so many different sides to her, and mm-hmm. it's not that she like plays these different roles and puts on these different faces and masks. I'm not saying that, Mm -hmm. but that she, she knows the time and place on when to act and when to speak and when to be silent. Um, And that's something that, you know, I really love about her. Mm -hmm. I think that um, she has a natural gift in order to, 
do chaplaincy work. Mm-hmm. Whereas myself, I have very much had to learn how to. She's in fact doing some chaplaincy now too, isn't she? Yeah, she is. She's uh, she's working for a company, um, <clears throat> doing chaplaincy work in the business sector. Mm-hmm. So um, going in and interacting with employees, um, and this is you know a business. It's not working with the marginalized mm-hmm. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think uh, that um, you know? Uh, there's something about working with marginalized people. Let me say this a different way. I think we can have great joy in working with marginalized people because we recognize within them uh, that that's me. There's 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 a sense in which we see. Uh, all of humanity and the people that we work with. Uh, But uh, I think in the call of God, we also become a man of sorrows or a woman of sorrows. And uh, we have both joy and sorrow as, Mm -hmm. as part of our calling, as part of how God is making something out of us shaping us to be like Jesus. Um, Any thoughts along those lines about your joy and your sorrow? I think chaplaincy work is just about, it's as much about me as it is about the people I serve. Mm -hmm. Um, That in order to help others, I have to deal with my own brokenness mm-hmm. um, and for me I'm very much a perfectionist uh, which sometimes gets in the way of chaplaincy mm-hmm. because I want to be able to I want to be able to fix things mm-hmm. um, and people are not things right uh, <laughs> um, and I have to be able to just slow down and ask myself the stories that they're telling me, like, how does this make me feel in this moment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I can't, just, I can't just treat all of the individuals I serve like a conveyor belt. And, you know, even though I interact with a lot of people, I have a lot of case files, um, and there are some people that I never get to, I never really get to resolve those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, people just disappear. Sometimes they pass away. Sometimes they go to jail. Uh, sometimes they move away. And I never get to get an answer. And that's a frustration for me. Mm. That's, uh, I wouldn't say a sorrow, but it's a deep, uh, just kind of almost a resentment. Mm-hmm. Um, like, why can't I resolve this? Why can't I just put the period on, close the book, um, it's a reoccurring theme. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's God very much teaching me patience. Mm-hmm. Um, and teaching me about how he's not done with me. Yeah. Uh, that, that just as my life is still going, um, yeah. he hasn't put the period on. Yeah. I often have thought, I've looked back to my past, and I've often said, as I've went to counseling or I've mm-hmm. met with people, 
that I thought all this was resolved. I mm-hmm. thought that God put the period on this, right? <laughs> that that chapter was gone. But the reality is, is it's never closed. Mm. Those things always, uh, they always have a way of affecting us. Uh, our bad experiences and our good, they're either going to shape us in a good way or shape us in a bad way. Mm-hmm. We never really get to forget those. Um, even you look at the Apostle Paul, right? Um, he used all of the horrible things that he had done um, as, you know, as a Jew um, to really actually fuel his ministry mm-hmm. in the early church. Mm-hmm. He said, like, I've done all these horrible things, mm-hmm. and I am the greatest of all sinners. Mm-hmm. And if God can change me, then what can he do with the rest of us? I think if you have the privilege 20 years from now <laughs> of, uh, you know, Googling it and finding uh, this podcast that you recorded, that you would be able to say 20 years from now, wow, look how far this faithful God has been faithful to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and how um, my faithfulness to him as best as I can, yeah. uh, actually produced something, you know, and uh, that's, uh, that's an amazing journey. When we talk about urban, uh, a definition I like to use is that urban is uh, three HDs. It's high density, meaning uh, high population, like a lot of people living in a small space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's high diversity, referring to culture, and high disparity, referring to the economic realities between the very rich and the very poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were a small town kid growing up around Lucan, <laughs> and uh, you, we, we joked about being a country boy, and, and um, you know, what um, do you, um, you know, you said, I, yeah, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, in in uh, in all seriousness, um, what have you learned as you have become not a small town boy, but uh, a man who who lives in an urban center? How has your perspective changed? Well, quite a bit since the time you were setting roads on fire. We've already covered that. <laughs> yeah. But but in terms of like if you go back and, and you visit people you know that you knew from, you know, 15 years ago that still live in the small town and never really went beyond that, what have you, what's, what's changed in your overall cultural perspective by living in the city? Really just the acceptance of new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, Growing up in Lucan, everybody was pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of diversity. No, 99% Caucasian. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, everybody was middle class. There was a couple families that you know, were on the lower end, yeah. and obviously there was a lot that were on the higher end. Um, but everybody was pretty much you know, par. Um, you learn... When you come to a city, you learn not to forsake the gospel, but that other people have views too. 
and mm. to hear those out and to not assume that your that your corner right um, is like you know the leading marker on truth right uh, yeah you learn to say like I could be wrong but mm. this is what I believe right I, mm. I could be wrong um, and let me listen to you so did is that kind of a humility that you had to learn? I I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that doesn't happen for all people in the city. Um, some people, some people have less time of day and less patience because they live in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, um, except when I'm in traffic, mm-hmm. um, uh, I learn that the city has taught me more about um, the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and more about uh, what heaven is really going to look like mm. than, right. than the small town. Right, the diversity of heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if people were, were thinking about getting involved, uh, let's say they, they've been living a fairly sheltered life, you know, uh, um, a, a fairly homogenized uh, you know, uh, life of con- everything's very predictable and same, but they feel this calling to urban mission, to, to go help at a shelter, to, yeah. um, to get involved in an urban church, to, to work in a soup kitchen. Um, what would you say to, to people that look at the city and say, um, I think I'm supposed to do something there. And, and yet that's not their starting point or their frame of reference. What, what would you say to somebody who's maybe entertaining the notion of getting involved in a world that's completely different from the one they're coming from? That's a good question. Um, number one, I would just say, like, you have to begin to drink the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, and not in like a, join a cult. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, that's not what you're saying. No, don't join the cult. <laughs> not that Kool Aid. Okay. Um, but you know, dr- begin to begin to listen to voices of people that are in urban ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go help out at that that soup kitchen, mm-hmm. even if it's just like a one time thing. Um, and don't just serve the food, but like embrace people, listen yeah. to them. Um, even if that's like a two minute conversation, mm-hmm. um, the thing that drew me to urban ministry isn't just my experience of being on the other side of it, but it's also going and interacting with people in cities. Like when I was in youth, I went on a mission trip to Philadelphia. I went on a mission trip to Chicago. Um, I went on a trip to Ottawa, um, all three very large urban centers, um, obviously Philadelphia and Chicago being much bigger, mm-hmm. um, and interacting with people of all ranges, like, you know, going into Chicago and working with people that are just like completely below the poverty line, mm-hmm. um, that are just living in, you know, the poorest of the poor neighborhoods there. Mm-hmm. And then also interacting with people you know, at the Chicago Bean and all these tourists and um, learning how to like share my faith in, in a, in a public place. Um, You really just have to do it. There's no other way. So, you know, I don't want to sound cliche, but like 
go on a missions trip. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's oftentimes one of the simplest but most effective ways for teens especially to begin to get exposure and exposure outside of what their norm is. Right. Because even if you grow up in Toronto, like you can you can go downtown Toronto and you can see a lot of homeless people. Uh, but you're so like you're just you're accustomed to it. Right. That it's just like, oh, hey, that that, you know, even if you know his name, oh, that's just Jim. You know, yeah. he's, so, the, he's the guy that owns the rats. It's, it's a world of difference when you get off the main streets and, and you start to interact with the people and really see what's there behind the movie set. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's completely different when you begin to know people's names and know their mm-hmm. stories, um, that they're not just that person, or even if you do know their name, that, per, you know, that it's it's Gary that sits on that corner, mm-hmm. and he's the one that, you know, sings show tunes on that corner every day at this yeah. time. Yeah. Um, when you get to hear his story or her story about what their life was like, what their yeah. dreams were, you begin to see them not as a not as a homeless person, but you get to see them as a person. Mm-hmm. You get to see that they're not that much different than you, mm-hmm. um, and that somewhere along the way, uh, their life took a different turn, whether that was by their choice or by some other circumstance. Mm-hmm. Something turned that is important to listen to. Mm-hmm. Important to hear, you know, what happened? Why Why are you on this corner every day? Um, yeah. Adam, if people want to get a hold of you um, it's through social media, what, what's what's your handle? Uh, I believe my Instagram handle is AdamWhite43. Is that your dream age? No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. There's just, there's so many people with my name oh, okay. that that was the number. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Adam White 43. Yeah. And uh, you're also on Facebook. Yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's the same, the same number on Facebook, I think. Great. Adam, uh, it's, it's been brilliant uh, having this conversation with you. And when I say brilliant, I mean, because uh, the light of God comes through what you have to say. And uh, so thank you for uh, taking time to, uh, to share with, with us a little, little bit of your uh, sidewalk skyline. <laughs> and uh, we appreciate you. Thank you. And uh, to all our uh, people who are listening, Sidewalk Skyline uh, is talking to people in Canadian cities who have a unique perspective on what God is doing. Thank you. That's really quite a transformation, isn't it? From being a 12-year-old runaway to, at the age of 23, 11 years later, being a chaplain uh, to people who are living on the streets. You know, a lot can change in a person's life, and that's the case for Adam. Step by step, he is learning how to be a faithful man. He is learning how to just keep going and how to uh, let go of the things of the past, take hold of the future that God has. And uh, today, uh, Adam is, uh, you know, uh, a happily married man with, with uh, a young son and, and um, a whole life ahead of him. And 
I'm glad to call him my friend. Well, on our next episode, I'm going to be interviewing Chris Chase. Earlier this year, I recorded uh, Chris when we were in downtown Toronto, and uh, it's uh, he, he's a he's a great guy. I first became aware of him when he was on the faculty of Masters College and Seminary in Peterborough, uh, and became more aware of him when I discovered him on the House of Common show on YouTube. The House of Common show, uh, you need to check it out, is a, uh, uh, a YouTube show uh, where uh, a bunch of uh, young black men uh, talk about culture, they talk about church, they talk about faith, they talk about sports, and uh, all things uh, that matter to them. And uh, Chris is uh, just such a, such a natural-born leader. And by the way, a very funny man too. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing this next episode with you. And uh, at the time we recorded it, Chris uh, was in between things. He didn't know uh, what was he was gonna be doing next. And, and since that time, um, he has taken on a, a, a preaching post, a pastorate uh, with the meeting house. And uh, so we'll, um, uh, be looking forward to hearing more from Chris. Well, until next time, uh, keep one ear to the sky and one ear to the ground in your city. I'm Kevin Rogers, and you've been listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.